What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Pharma. America's biopharmaceutical industry is ready to do our part. We are willing to work with all stakeholders to deliver a more resilient, affordable, and equitable healthcare system. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Dietzellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today we have two segments about the coronavirus pandemic, the lessons learned and what they mean for the future. So please stick around for both of them. First, I'm delighted to welcome Alexander Hardy. He's the CEO of the biotech giant Genentech, and he'll be talking to us about the scientific breakthroughs in medical science. A very warm welcome to you, Mr. Hardy. Thank you very much, Francis. Pleasure to be here with you. As always, I'd like to reach out to our audience and let you know to send questions to our Twitter handle at PostLive, and we'll try to get to a couple of those during the show. That's at PostLive. Tweet your questions. And before we start, a quick disclosure, Alexander Harvey serves on the board of directors of Pharma, today's sponsor. And now over to you, Mr. Hardy. I'd like to ask, first of all, about your um, treatment, Actembra, which received FDA emergency use authorization about a year ago, I think. Please, could you tell us who it's for and how it works. Yes, absolutely, Francis. Well, you know, this is part of our response to the pandemic. Very early on, we realized uh, it was very clear to us that this is going to require mobilization on a, on a scale, on an unprecedented scale across the entire uh, healthcare ecosystem. And our responsibility as a company focused on diagnostics and therapeutics was very, very clear. And we, we, we rapidly started developing uh, diagnostics and uh, you know, th- those diagnostics from Roche have been a, you know, really a, a pillar of the response to the pandemic. Over 1.2 billion tests being delivered um, to, to help treat, or I should say, identify uh, COVID rapidly. Uh, on the therapeutic side, which is Genentech's focus, uh, we worked on 10 medicines, uh, developing and researching uh, 10 medicines for, for COVID. Two of them ended up with uh, emergency use authorization. One is uh, antibody cocktail in partnership with uh, Regeneron. And the other one is uh, Ectemera or tocilizumab, which is the medicine uh, you uh, you mentioned. Uh, tocilizumab, uh, emergency use authorization, is for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. And it's been uh, shown to, to, to work in a, in a very large study uh, based out of the UK to um, prevent the risk of progression to ventilator uh, and death in hospitalized uh, COVID patients. So it's a, an anti-inflammatory drug and it works in that sort of uh, dramatic uh, inflammatory response that patients, uh, more, the most severe patients can get. So it, it is by no means a, a treatment for everyday COVID. Uh, there are other options, but for the seriously sick patient, it, it's an extremely important part of the armamentarium that, that healthcare professionals have worldwide to treat COVID. And uh, since the start of the pandemic, more than a million patients globally, hospitalized patients, have been treated uh, with Ectemra. So it's played an important role. 
and what, that brings me to a key question about it. With the the virus changing, mutating, evolving rapidly, and we've got new subvariants at the moment, and the potential, of course, for new variants coming, will your drug have to change, or will it stick to its efficacy, whatever we see coming ahead? It's a great question, Francis. It's a uh, it's not an antiviral. Uh, it's an anti-inflammatory, so it works mm -hmm. on part of the disease pathway, uh, and it is it is uh, it should work regardless. Uh, of the the variant, uh, if the patient goes into this this immune uh, re dramatic re immune acute uh, immune response, uh, then Ectamer is one of the treatment options that that uh, healthcare professionals can can use, regardless of the variant. So you talked about this drug being available widely around the world. I think in sixteen countries, that leaves an awful lot of countries that aren't getting it. What kind of steps are you taking to make sure that it is available globally? Yes, well, you know, our first priority is a is a manufacturer. Apart from obviously the research and development, uh, is manufacturing, and, and you know that that was our that was our very clear priority uh, as we worked in parallel to determine does this drug have a role in uh, reducing mortality and morbidity uh, in COVID nineteen was to scale up uh, production uh, at risk. Again, before we actually knew, does this work or not? We actually devoted our, our largest manufacturing plant in the world, biologics manufacturing plant uh, in the world to COVID-19. So we moved all the other products out uh, and focused on the, the production of Ictemra uh, and the uh, uh, antibody cocktail and, and produced as much of it as we possibly could. I mean, this, this was clear to us that this was uh, really critical for us to do. Uh, so first and foremost, that's what we've been we've been uh, seeking to do throughout, uh, is make this available uh, as broadly as possible. Um, it's very much a partnership with governments around the world uh, to make it accessible. Uh, it is a a drug that was already available and approved for other indications. Um, so you know that represents both a, an opportunity and a challenge uh, from from an access standpoint. So again, partnership was really critical with with governments. I'd like to ask about another aspect of equity and access. We've heard so much about distrust and the pandemic has done an awful lot to highlight the terrible inequities in access to drugs. One area that companies can have some control over is clinical trials. What is Genentech doing to make sure that a diverse group of uh, people sign up for those trials? Yeah, Francis, I'm glad we touched upon this. I, unfortunately, this is one of the really tough lessons, but if there's a silver lining coming out of the pandemic, it's shone such a stark bright light on the issue of health equity that I, I think that, that, that we're now uh, resolved as a whole health care ecosystem uh, to make really needed progress here. I mean, in, in, in times of, of stress uh, and crisis, uh, equity is equity issues are exacerbated. They existed already, but there was such, again, such a, a clear issue during this pandemic. Uh, we could see the mortality and morbidity was different, uh, but we could also see that the access to care was different uh, amongst these different populations. So uh, during the pandemic, we, we were already working on the topic prior to the pandemic, but I would say the pandemic accelerated our efforts. And with the drug Ectemra that we've just been talking about, we, we realized that it was gonna be critical for us to answer the question, does this drug work not only in the broadest population, 
but does it work in underserved populations that weren't represented in the original clinical studies and not necessarily represented in, in some of the research that was being done during the pandemic. So we actually uh, dialed up a, a, a study in short order focused on underserved populations. And we were, we were able to recruit 85% of that uh, patient population uh, amongst underserved communities. That, that's the black population, uh, Hispanic, Latinx, and Native American population. In fact, the largest recruiting uh, site was on the edge of the Navajo Nation, which I'm, you know, I was really, I'm proud of, but at the same time, uh, you know, really speaks to the, the, the unmet need that the, the, the study recruited so rapidly uh, in, within that community. And, and what about pregnant women, another group that is often uh, omitted from trials and about which there's very little data? Yes, you know, that, that's, that's a very, very good point. I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, that continues to be a challenge uh, in terms of developing safe and effective medicines and making sure it's representative, that those, those studies are representative of the populations that need them. So, you know, it, it, it tends to be that that data comes out afterwards, after you've really established the safety in the broader population uh, and uh, use of registries and real world data to really understand the safety of profile uh, of drugs in, in, in that population, just like many others. A question about supply chains, they're affecting all of us in all sorts of different areas. What sort of impact are they having on your work? You know, this has been one of the issues during the pandemic, and I think one of the calls to action to all of us is we've got to we've got to work uh, more effectively together in partnership with governments in a coordinated global way to make sure we don't face the supply chain issues that we face during this this pandemic. When it whether it comes to medical supplies or whether it comes to to vital medicines or or diagnostics, um, you know, we are we we have to work on this together. We we certainly faced challenges uh, during the pandemic with uh, availability of key raw materials uh, and our ability to, 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 to continue with research and development of our existing portfolio of drugs, which are in critical areas such as cancer uh, and uh, neurodegeneration in neuroscience. Uh, this, these were really challenging issues. Um, so yes, we have to make sure going forward that there's free movement uh, of critical medical supplies, finished goods and raw materials. Uh, we need a national policy which is really looking at uh, a risk assessment approach and looking at this as from a national security standpoint, but working in partnership uh, with other governments together uh, to make sure that there, there aren't issues with, with border controls uh, during uh, a, a, an international health emergency like this one. Yeah, so talking about a public health emergency, it thrusts a company like yours into, into close contact with the federal government. Tell us about how you worked with the government in getting Ectemera uh, um, accepted for an EUA um, and whether that regulatory process you feel is uh, encouraging of innovation. You know, the partnership with the, the federal government um, has been, overall during the pandemic, has been extremely positive. Uh, the level of, of uh, public-private partnership, a, a sense of urgency, uh, the responsiveness to, to key issues um, was was really exceptional. And I, uh, I I'm I'm hoping and expecting that we can continue this momentum coming out of the pandemic as we try and address uh, 
all the many diseases which continue to, to plague, plague uh, mankind. So the partnership has really been excellent. I mean, they, uh, they, we, we, as I, as I mentioned, for example, we, we dedicated one of our manufacturing plants uh, to COVID. Uh, that, that required a huge amount of work and, uh, you know, a, a, a process that would prior to the pandemic would take over a year. We were able to do in a matter of months. Uh, and uh, I can honestly say that, that we wouldn't have been able to do that without the partnership. Uh, particularly from the FDA, it's been uh, it's been extraordinary uh, during the pandemic. So we've seen this huge drop off in numbers, and again, we're beginning to see maybe them picking up in hospital. Well, certainly in hospitalizations, and just um, maybe even in deaths. Um, you know, vaccines have been shown to wane in efficacy over time. Are you surprised by the continued need for your treatment? What do you see going ahead for this kind of uh, treatment for severely sick people? You know, I, I'm not surprised. I, I, I felt from the very, very start, and I by no means have a unique perspective here, that this was going to take testing, vaccinations, and therapeutics, uh, the combination thereof, uh, to be able to manage through this, this pandemic and get us through to the other side. And unfortunately, we're still not through to that other side. And, it, and it's, it's very, very clear that uh, we still need uh, improvements in the vaccines. It's been really incredible that we so rapidly got uh, very effective vaccines, but there's still room for improvement on that front. Uh, testing continues to be really critical uh, to have highly accurate, rapid testing that's easily and accessibly uh, available to people. Uh, and then uh, effective therapeutics. And we've also come a long way there to have or oral therapeutics that can be taken at the, the first sign of symptoms for, for high-risk populations. But there's still room for improvement on all those three areas. Um, so I'm, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not surprised. This is going to continue to be a, a, an area of focus uh, for the research-based industry. It's going to continue to, to push forward in, in all these three areas and, and improve on, on what we've already got. So I'm wondering if you have data on who are now getting the vaccines. Are they largely unvaccinated populations? Or as the vaccines uh, wane in their efficacy, uh, is there high demand among people who are already vaccinated? You know, I, I don't have uh, the data on the, the, the vaccination rates right now. Uh, we're primarily focused on the diagnostic on the, and on the therapeutic side. So uh, probably your next guess is, pro ne next guess no, is no. probably... I, 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 sp I misspoke. I'm sorry. I was asking about demand for your drug, which is for very sick people. Do you have data on whether that's being used largely by uh, unvaccinated people or for unvaccinated we don't. people? No, we, we, we don't have the data to, to, to tell us uh, as to whether it's, it's used in the vaccinated or the unvaccinated population. You know, I think it's, it's, a, it, it's a, uh, an educated guess to say that, that hospitalized patients I mean, that's the majority of the, the patients using our, our, our treatment. As we know, the data suggests that the, the majority of the hospitalized population are unvaccinated. Uh, so I, 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 whilst I would like uh, specific data on that, uh, being a science-based uh, company, right. uh, I think that's a pretty, a pretty safe guess that they're unvaccinated populations, the majority of people who are receiving our, our therapeutic at this point. Well, I don't think any of us thought we'd be where we are now two years ago, but looking back and thinking about how your company adapted, and of course, you're talking about the huge changes you made to dedicate these resources to COVID. Is there something you would have, you wish you could have done differently or did do differently? 
you know i think I, I, overall i feel like we we, we moved at a, at a huge sense of urgency uh, and you know i'm really pleased with the degree of, of partnership both with government and uh with the uh with the private sector i mean we're, we're, we're partnering with people we never have partnered with uh, before uh, and I think that's made a tremendous difference. I, I think, you know, I, I would I would say that the topic of of, of health equity, you know, bears uh, bears a heavy burden on all of us. And uh, you know, I think that you know we should have, uh, and as a company and as an industry, we should have done a, a better job with regard to to trust uh, and equitable access uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, we're working very, very hard and fast to try and resolve those issues now. But that's that's something that that uh, really um, that does that does cause a lot of reflection and lessons learned. Um, that uh, we saw such a disproportionate impact, and you know what could we have done sooner? Uh, for years, again, we 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 knew there were issues. Um, uh, we should have done more. So you've had this relationship with the federal government, but of course, so much delivery um, rests on state and local officials. The the public health service here is so um, uh, divided among very small agencies, and we're going to hear from one of them um, in a moment. But how has that affected your approach? Is there a way you could have drilled down more effectively locally or at least at the state level around the country? You know, we we have a, a good relationship uh, with many many different agencies, but you're right. This was a this was a complicated tapestry of of different agencies at, at the federal level, uh, as well as at the state and local level. Uh, and I think this is one of the lessons learned from the the pandemic is we need greater uh, clarity of accountability, greater clarity over over decision making. Um, whether it's that's at the federal level, at the state level, or at the at the local level, um, and I and I I hope this is one of the things that's going to be coming out of the pandemic is is a is a is a, a sense of urgency to clarify that, because we need to start preparing for the next pandemic, uh, even as we're trying to uh, finish the one we're already in, uh, we have to have a sense of urgency over preparing. It's just a matter of time. Which brings me to my last question. A company like Genentech, if you can choose the key priority, the key way you'd like to adapt for the next pandemic, what is it? Well, I think it's it's going to be, you, you're asking me to, to focus on one. And I would, one. you know, <laughs> I would I would say, you know, it, it's partnerships, uh, a sense of urgency, but I think it's this, this preparations and partnering with the government around preparing for the next pandemic, making sure that we have uh, manufacturing capability, capacity, making sure we have, we're investing in the, the sorts of research that, that's going to be critical to provide the, the base technology to allow us to respond to whatever that threat is, uh, and to make sure we've got enough product uh, available to be able to respond quickly, that we've got a diversified strategic national stockpile, that, that whatever the threat is, uh, we can rapidly address it. Alexander Hardy, thank you so much for joining me at Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. I'll be back in a few moments with the Chicago Health Commissioner to see another side of our preparations for the next pandemic.
The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of the Cypher Brief, a media organization focused on national security. We all know that the COVID pandemic impacted every part of our lives, but it also presented incredible opportunities to learn, to adapt, and to grow. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that today with Pharma President and CEO Stephen Ubel. Mr. Ubel, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Suzanne. Great to be with you. You know, the biopharmaceutical industry really responded to COVID-19 in a robust collaborative way that produced billions of both vaccines and treatments. What have you learned along the way that may help with future emergencies? Well, as you point out, uh, addressing the pandemic was really the industry's finest hour. It's very difficult to create a new class of medicines. It's a medical miracle, frankly, to do it inside a calendar year. You know, if you reflect back to the beginning of the pandemic, we actually had very little to offer physicians who are treating patients with COVID-19 to where we are today with nine authorized and approved vaccines and treatments, which has really enabled us to save countless lives and return to relative normalcy. And we've learned a lot over the past couple of years that we think can be leveraged going forward. I think there are really three key takeaways. The first is collaboration. There was an unprecedented level of collaboration with key public health officials at the state, national, and international levels. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had lots of interaction with government officials around how to ensure that clinical trials were as efficient as possible. We tried to look ahead and identify bottlenecks in the supply chain to ramp up production as quickly as possible without jeopardizing access to inputs uh, that are critical for manufacturing other medicines. Uh, and perhaps less appreciated is the unprecedented collaboration within the industry, as we saw numerous instances of our companies checking their competitive nature at the door and helping their competitors manufacture life-saving vaccines and therapeutics. So Merck, for example, helping to manufacture J&J's vaccine, or Amgen helping to manufacture Eli Lilly's monoclonal antibody, just to name a couple. Second, new technologies had an enormous impact, whether it was new technologies to help decode the virus in record time, or digital technologies like telehealth or remote monitoring technologies that help clinical trials continue in an environment where patients uh, we're not going to see their physician or visiting the hospital uh, due to social distancing requirements. And we think there's great potential going forward to leverage those technologies to further decentralize clinical trials and address lack of participation in those trials, particularly among underserved black and brown communities. Uh, stay tuned on this. We'll be announcing significant uh, new efforts on this front in the coming weeks. Third, Many patients who sadly died of COVID have actually died from secondary infections, which there are no effective uh, antibiotics. Uh, we think there are steps Congress could take, uh, namely by enacting the Pasteur Act, which would provide for novel contracting approaches like uh, subscription models uh, to address the fundamental challenge in this space, which is that it's very challenging to invest billions in developing new antimicrobials that by definition we want to use in a, in a more limited way. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the big technological advances clearly has been the mRNA platform technology. How has this been sort of game changing for the industry, do you think? As you point out, it is a platform technology. It's been in development for decades. Uh, it was initially studied to help develop more effective flu vaccines, as well as for Zika and other public health threats. You know, the technology is pretty amazing. It basically allows us to instruct the body to create a harmless protein that is associated with the disease 
like the spike protein as a part of the COVID um, virus, that triggers our own body's immune system to recognize it and attack it if it's ever present in the body. The platform also allows us to deal with mutations uh, much more quickly than previous technologies. Uh, so as you point out, it's a very exciting technology. It's now being studied in clinical trials for other diseases like HIV, as well as other uh, types of cancer like melanoma and pancreatic cancer, for example. Uh, and I, I must point out that it's really our ecosystem in the United States that led to the development of mRNA. It's the envy of the world. Uh, and candidly, it's being jeopardized by policies that would, for example, impose price controls on the industry uh, or other uh, steps that would chill investment going forward. Uh, so we think there are better ways to lower costs for patients without sacrificing access to future treatments like mRNA. You know, so much of the discussion um, this last uh, six months and, and even a little bit longer than that has been around supply chain. How is the industry navigating those issues? You know, our industry has a very robust, diverse and global supply chain that's really enabled the industry to address COVID-19 without major disruption. You may remember several years ago, there was a major hurricane that devastated Puerto Rico, which is a manufacturing hub for the industry. But due to the diverse global nature of our supply chain, our companies were able to redirect various aspects of the manufacturing process to other locations, and we didn't skip a beat. And we're on track today to deliver 20 billion doses of vaccine, largely because of this global uh, diverse supply chain. Having said that, there are certainly ways to enhance the resilience of the supply chain. We should make it easier for competitors to team up, as I described before. Uh, new creative partnerships uh, should be forged around the world to voluntarily uh, share technical know-how. You know, some have argued that breaking patents and essentially giving away our intellectual property uh, is the way to go. We think that would be a big mistake. You know, the main issue with global access to vaccine today isn't supply. It's a host of other issues we need to work with stakeholders on, like vaccine hesitancy and ensuring the local health infrastructure necessary to effectively distribute products. Some have also yeah. argued that we should take steps to bring more manufacturing to the United States. We, of course, support more incentives uh, to do that, uh, but we should do so in a targeted way uh, so that we avoid uh, policies that might exacerbate the problems we're trying to solve by creating shortages uh, or increasing costs for consumers unnecessarily. There's so much more to dig in on here. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us for a few minutes. Farmer President and CEO Stephen Ubel. Now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. I'm delighted now to welcome Dr. Alison Awadi. She is the health commissioner for the city of Chicago. Dr. Awadi, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Uh, to our audience, please don't forget, if you'd like to send in questions, tweet them to at Post Live. That's at Post Live. So sorry for that little hiccup at the beginning on the sound, but my first question to you is about what we heard in the video. Four days before you activated for COVID, you became health commissioner. Tell us about the whirlwind that must have been. <laughs> yes, so luckily I had been at the Chicago Department of Public Health since 2015. I have a long career in outbreak response. It's my area of expertise. But nevertheless, um, I'd been the acting commissioner, but I was confirmed just four days before. Uh, and we started screening at O'Hare and then just, you know, within a couple of weeks had what turned out to be the second case of COVID in the US and the first case of uh, confirmed person-to-person -person transmission. So right away, really thrust into uh, 
local, state, and national conversations about what our response was and having to talk a lot about the preparedness measures that we did have in place. And just to kind of start it off, you know, so glad everything we had done in advance we had in place. And when I'm looking ahead, it's about building on a lot of the strengths that we had here and recognizing where we didn't have things that it turns out that we really needed um, in Chicago, but also as a system. So tell me about those strengths. I mean, Chicago um, is a big city with a centralized health system. Talk to us about what Chicago had on that, how that compares to this very diffuse public health system in the country where, you know, a state like North Carolina has 100 separate health departments. Yes. Um, so there are, we have lots and lots of health departments across the state of Illinois, uh, but we work together. And here in Chicago, in particular, as a big city, you know, we'd been receiving some emergency preparedness funding from the federal government going all the way back to 9-11. That's really when we started thinking about what does it mean to be prepared for bioterrorism? What does it mean, you know, after anthrax, et cetera? And I have to give my emergency preparedness team in Chicago um, like enormous thanks and gratitude for being as serious as they were. The year prior to COVID, uh, when I was not in the commissioner role yet, but here, we had actually focused on pandemic preparedness. I uh, had imagined, what if we had a big pandemic influenza outbreak? We modeled out an outbreak that would have looked like 1918 here in Chicago, and we modeled out one that would have looked like H1N1, and we modeled out one that showed up kind of in between those two, which is where COVID landed. And we did a full city activation where we got the schools together and said, what if we had to close and we had to feed all the kids, what would that look like? Uh, we, we updated all of our plans. We had all of these annexes around, here's who the partners need to be, here's what we would use. We practiced using our mobile morgues we had stored. We had millions of pristine N95s uh, ready to go for the healthcare system. I wish that across the whole country um, and at the federal level, everybody had taken the stuff of emergency preparedness as seriously as we did in Chicago. Because let me tell you, knowing that we had some of those material resources, we had some ventilators, we had PPE, we didn't have it for everybody. We were really, what we'd been funded to was to support the acute healthcare system, the hospitals, but we were needing materials for outpatient. We were needing materials for long-term care. We were needing materials for the general public. And that was not something um, that the health department had previously planned for or been funded for. And I think the stuff part though is, you know, we had that just about as right as anybody did in the country. And yet there were so many gaps where you think about the systems and especially the personnel. And so in the same way, we were very serious about investing in the infrastructure, the warehouses, the training. Uh, every time we have the marathon here or Lollapalooza, 17, 18 times a year, we activate as a city like it is an emergency response and we practice that across, you know, with everybody. Um, what we need though is more of the boots on the ground, frankly, doing the work of public health all the time that can then very quickly transition in an emergency. And having some of that core is, is what we've invested in because we had a lot of the stuff. We were able to invest more in the personnel. And I really wanna be able to hopefully keep that kind of preparedness up where you're hiring folks 
from neighborhoods, building trust, building that infrastructure, um, because that was the piece that we didn't have enough of, um, frankly, uh, right at the beginning. And although we've built it up now, I am not sure that we will be receiving the funding long term to sustain it, and we need it. But a city's not an island, which is really where I was going with this question. Um, you're in the state of Illinois, huge political diversity in that state. How have you worked with the other public health departments in the state? What have you learned from them? And what has Chicago had to do to help? You have many of the biggest hospitals in the state. That's right. Uh, yeah, we are very much the regional referral center. Uh, so when you're thinking especially about that specialized care, or you're thinking about some of the smaller um, hospitals downstate being overwhelmed, and even outside of Illinois, we know that a lot of patients are transferred to Chicago. And, you know, I was very proud of our healthcare system here. I have to tell you that in all of our planning, we had not seriously anticipated overrunning the health system like we saw happen uh, in you know parts of the world and the US. But the good news is we did already have some systems in place so that we had a citywide and even a statewide view of where there was bed capacity, where there was ICU capacity. And a lot of our hospitals stepped up in amazing ways to say, we will transform whole sections of our hospital uh, for higher level ICU care for people who need it for COVID, even if the financial reimbursement is not really there, especially for folks who you know, may have Medicaid or be uninsured. But it is true that we, um, we end up getting a lot, having to provide a lot of that higher level care for the whole region. And so thinking about some of those transfers, of course, working with the Illinois Department of Public Health and with all of, especially the Northern Illinois Public Health Consortium, sharing resources, trying to make sure we're aligned on messaging, working to build that trust, um, and thinking about you know mutual aid where that is possible. Um, I think as a whole country, when different parts of the country were surging, we saw the ability to transfer additional, you know, doctors and nurses and uh, public health staff to an area that that needed it in a short-term way. And thinking about that mutual aid idea across the whole country makes some sense. But if you're in the middle of an Omicron wave and the whole country is getting slammed, um, you know, you you again have the potential to really outrun that fairly quickly. So yes, everything in public health by definition is collaborative. And um, we really think a lot together. I think about equity and how do we together make sure that we are lifting up access, um, whether it's here in Chicago, uh, in Northern Illinois, or even across the country, how do we think about decreasing the barriers of access to care, to vaccination, um, and uh, take lessons learned from one part of the state or the country and, and, and try them here in Chicago and vice versa. So let me ask you about the, the federal response, the Global Health Security Index ranked the US number one in preparedness, and yet we're around a million deaths now. And the, the US has been widely criticized for, for health inequities. What do you make of that disconnect and what can Chicago do to help rectify it? Yeah, so I think I, I've been impressed, honestly, that the preparedness, the people who work on this have taken such a clear-eyed view and said all of the things that we thought mattered the most for preparedness turned out to not be the things that mattered most. So that's where I said, you know, we had the stuff and yes, you have to have that. 
but what does it look like and how do you know some of the most interesting papers around that i think are measures recognizing that things like trust interpersonal trust trust in government lack of corruption in government um, if you can have improvements in those which sometimes you know we think of as softer things to be able to measure uh, you know some of the researchers were able to show that really countries that had higher levels of trust in each other and in the government have had better outcomes, at least to date in COVID. And so much of our response has been highly politicized here that I think trust has gone down. And I've certainly spent a lot more time thinking about how you build trust, how you combat misinformation, how you think about who the messengers are. I also think, frankly, it's highlighted the ways in which we are not a particularly healthy country at baseline in the US. Uh, we don't live the longest. We have a lot of chronic diseases. We've seen that a high body mass index, uh, more obesity, is an independent risk factor for poor COVID outcomes, not just at the individual level, but likely at the country level. And so when I think about us being prepared as a country, yes, it's all the infectious disease work, but it's also, can we invest in a way that actually improves health at baseline, that makes sure people um, are less likely to develop the chronic diseases that put you at risk for the severe outcomes of COVID or anything else. Uh, and how do we actually you know, build health at, at baseline? Not just, not just health care, which is sort of the repair shop, uh, but how do we make the, the public health, the environments in which people live healthier um, and, and actually improve the health of our population? Because the other reason that, that we were hit hard, I think, is just that we are not as healthy at baseline. So if there are problems with trust, and I think they've been really very well documented that you're describing with the federal government, federal levels, every level, I think, in delivery, what about one of the great successes, which is the biotech area, the, the invention of these mRNA vaccines? What does that say about the relationship with private practice and with the federal government and how public health fits into this? Yes. So, you know, amazing the way biotech, you know, this, we know this is a strength in the US. Um, it's something we have invested in heavily as a country. It's something that certainly there are market forces that can drive if it's set up well, this kind of innovation. Um, and it is amazing to me how quickly that technology um, really came to bear fruit. And thank goodness, right? The most important thing. However, I always remind people, even in the year 2020, the year the pandemic hit us, if you look at US spending, the, our health dollar, $4.1 trillion that year, what percent do you think was spent on public health activities in year one of the pandemic? 5%. And that's per CMS, uh, Center for Medicaid and Medicare. And if we're only spending 5% uh, of our health dollar on all of the preventive activities, and that's not just you know for pandemic, that's our behavioral health work, that's our environmental health work, that's our food protection work, uh, that's our maternal child health work you end up seeing that, of course, we've got these amazing outcomes um, and, and we should be so proud of them. But how do we take that innovation and how do we take that financial support into the public health space, which is all about delivering that technology to 
people in an equitable way, right? Even when we had these amazing vaccines, we have these amazing treatments available, we still see people in parts of Chicago initially unable to access them. Now we've done a lot around, you know, you can get a vaccine at your home, no matter who you are, any age, booster, we started that and we've continued it to help with the access issues. But again, back to sort of trust and understanding who is the messenger and is this technology for me? Was it, what was the research done on people who look like me and share my experience? Um, is this something that I actually believe will make my, uh, my own health and my family's health better or not? And we just have not invested in the infrastructure of building that confidence um, and of creating, I think, the pipeline of not just developing these amazing technologies for well-insured people, but how to make sure that, especially in a crisis, anybody who needs these can access them. Are we even having those conversations? Are you speaking to biotech companies and telling them how important it is to get a diverse group of people into clinical trials and pregnant women? Are you having the conversations with the federal government to make sure these, this triangle is, uh, the parts of the triangle are held together? Yeah, certainly. I think um, on the clinical research side, for example, here in Chicago, you know, we, I think a lot of, obviously we participate in our, our academic health centers and our researchers participate in a lot of these trials. And we have put a lot of effort into improving the racial and ethnic diversity um, and all other types of diversity in these trials. There's a long way to go, but I was really pleased, for example, that when we were sharing the vaccine, the initial vaccine trial data, I could point out this is what our, who participated in these trials in Chicago, and this is what those people look like, because we did have much, much higher than national um, standards for uh, how many people, especially Black and Latinx folks, were participating in Chicago. Still not enough. Um, but I think having these conversations, and we've tried at some level to broker these where you're saying, you know, the, the secret sauce is often in who is doing the asking, who is doing the explaining. And I think we've tried some innovative things here and continue to try to learn uh, from, from examples um, at the health department and with partners about how do you extend that and build that. But it's, again, it's not something that has historically been as seriously investigated, I think, as the scientific side has. Um, and I am, you know, we are part of conversations on that and we think it's, we think it's critical. And I think we've seen, it, it was so unusual, still a year plus after we've had a vaccine, I still have to reassure people that they will not get charged for a vaccine, regardless mm -hmm. of their immigration status, their income, their insurance status. It is so atypical for people mm -hmm. to be able to get even these preventive measures without worrying about a bill uh, that, 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 we have to change that paradigm um, so that especially the less expensive, highly preventive um, opportunities for people to access that technology are trusted, available to all. Tell me quickly where things stand in Chicago after the Omicron wave and now with these subvariants appearing to threaten us. Yeah, so uh, the Omicron wave actually hit us very hard, the initial Omicron wave in Chicago. We had more Chicagoans hospitalized 
during the Omicron wave that at mm. any point prior, and most of those folks, many of those folks were not vaccinated still. And this gets back to the, although we've done a lot on this and I'm really proud of it, um, there are still people who have not chosen to take advantage um, of that technology. We have uh, just Friday, we moved from that low uh, COVID-19 level into the medium COVID-19 level. That's not because of severe outcomes, but it is because we are seeing more and more cases with these subvariants coming. So we are back to, again, strongly recommending masks in indoor settings. And we've said if we get to the high level, we would require them again. I hope we don't get there. We're not close to getting there right now, uh, but it is a moment where we're paying some attention again to COVID. And nobody wants this to be quote unquote over uh, as much as I do, but I think it is about learning to live and uh, moderate risk depending on what the risk is in the community. So I'm confident about the systems that we have in place. I'm confident about how our health systems are working together, a lot of the infrastructure we've built up uh, here in Chicago. I'm confident, you know, under Mayor Lightfoot, uh, all of the focus that we've put on equity and continue to learn lessons from that. Um, but COVID is on the rise again here. So we're keeping a close eye um, and uh, continuing to work on both the direct and the indirect effects of COVID, which I think continue to really show up in all kinds of new and concerning ways. I want to squeeze in one last question, so we're running out of time, but looking ahead either to a, a very different new variant of this uh, particular pathogen or an entirely new one, which could affect very different populations, pick one or two key lessons, and I'm afraid it has to be quick, that you take sure. from the experience you've had over the last two years that will be key response. Yeah. Key lesson is do what we did here in Chicago. We hired about 800 Chicagoans from our West and South sides, more than 90% Black and Latino with no prior educational or work experience. They just had to be good at talking to people. We hired them to be our contact tracing team, and then they became our vaccine ambassadors. And now they're connecting people to treatment and to care. And being able for me to have a sustained workforce that is through community-based organizations so that we also have 30 community-based organizations that all together have a network. They see themselves as part of public health. We grow and train folks um, without barriers to entry to become that public health workforce. And we need to sustain that workforce long-term and have it be flexible. So no matter what comes next, they can convert from working on diabetes or heart disease or food insecurity. They can convert quickly to any um, emergency preparedness response uh, for which they would would be needed. And that for me, um, it's not just about the stuff, it's the systems and the personnel to build it. And that's probably our biggest lesson um, here in Chicago. Trust the folks who are on the ground, train them um, and build that human infrastructure. And don't just fund when a pandemic comes, fund long term so we can build that infrastructure, make us a healthier country uh, at baseline and be able to build on the successes we've had in Chicago and, and uh, respond even more effectively. We heard that loud and clear, a message for a sustained human infrastructure. Dr. Alison Awadi, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 support your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com 
and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.